let's turn our Bibles to First John. First John and uh, chapter four. First John chapter four. We will read from verse thirteen to the end of the chapter. First John will commence reading from verse 13. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does, who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, brethren, we're continuing in our series of messages on the subject or theme of assurance of salvation from John's first epistle. And we are currently in this section that deals with love, uh, beginning from verse 7 and all the way to the beginning of chapter 5. In fact, the subject of love is one that commenced in chapter 3 and verse 11. So we have been dealing with this subject for quite some time. I hope most of you will recall that we have emphasized that assurance of salvation is all important. And one reason why it is crucial is because when you die and you discover you were on the wrong side of God, you were deceived, it will be too late. It doesn't matter how sincere you may have been. At that point, you will discover there is no going back, there is no correcting the situation. You were a fool not to have examined 
where you were really standing with God. But the other reason that we have again given is that your ability to give yourself to God and especially to Christian service hangs on this issue. Because what drives the Christian faith, as we shall be seeing today, is not fear. Rather, it is love. And it is as you love the Lord that you then express that love in Christian service, in doing good to others, in sharing with them the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for these reasons and many others, it is crucial that each one of us should know, am I truly saved or am I not? Now, in case you're one of those going around thinking that you cannot know until you die, I'd like to say to you that that's not the understanding of Scripture. In fact, the whole of First John, as we've been making our way here, continues to give one litmus paper test after another. In other words, clearly the Bible wants us to know, God wants us to know whether we are truly his children or not. And he doesn't want us to know on our deathbed. He wants us to know now. And currently, we are looking at that section where John is using the argument of love. Already at the very end of chapter 4, he is saying that if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Again, he's making that an abundantly clear test of our stand before God. It is not simply that, yes, I love the Lord, at least I think I do, it is that I love the brethren too. I love those who walk with God, who are saved by him. Well, this morning, we're looking at verse 18, and this is a verse that uh, I was tempted to, to title or entitle my sermon simply with the words, the word fear. That's it, just fear. Read verse 18 with me. John is saying there, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Last week, you will recall, I used an illustration. And I, I spoke about a father coming home from work. And uh, I was saying that uh, often kids, as soon as they hear the car arriving, they dash out of the house. They come and hug daddy around the feet and so on, and you lift them up and you go with them uh, into the house. It's especially when they are younger. It's a, you look forward uh, to, to that experience. 
are not just to the dogs coming out and making your suit dirty. But there's always this experience every so often that occurs. You, you drive in and you're expecting that to happen. And uh, you come out of the house, the car, and it's dead silent. Nobody is coming out to greet you. You get into the house as silent as the grave. You know that surely the family is still around. And finally, out of curiosity, you make your way into the children's bedroom and all of them are responding, it's not me, it's not me. Clearly, you realize, yes, that's why they didn't rush out to greet me. It's because one of them, or all of them, have done something wrong. And consequently, you begin the process of finding out not only what happened, but who did it, the whys, and, and take appropriate action. Well, what we have in verse 18 then is really dealing with that same reaction of the children. Let's assume what happened then is that they were playing football and then one of them kicked the ball and it broke one of the windows. And perhaps you've always told them not to play football in that particular place because this might happen. Kids being what they are or who they are, why shouldn't they play here? You are not around. Until it happens, the windows are broken. What happens? Well, what we are being told here is depending on the parental-child relationship, you're going to have one reaction or the other. And that parental-child relationship is not something that's going to be born at that point it is something that has already been true, has been processed in the child's mind, and this breaking of the glasses or the windows is simply showing, bringing out in the open the real situation there. It's a perfect illustration of this that John is therefore beginning to share with us. He is saying essentially here that assurance of my relationship with God is reasonable. It is something you process. You realize because God loves me, therefore, although I have done something wrong against him, he is my father I can go to him and say, forgive me, forgive me. And I know consequently that come the day of judgment, I will not be scampering for cover when I see something of him in his brilliance, I will know I am meeting with my loving father. That's what we learned last week, didn't we, in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, 
so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. We may have boldness. We may have courage. We may meet with God on the day of judgment with no tremor passing through our beings. Why? Because as he is, is a God of love, so also are we in the world. We ourselves have love in our hearts by his spirit dwelling in us. Now, John immediately addresses that natural fear. And this natural fear is addressed because we all have consciences. We do. What I was illustrating earlier on with children is the reality with us as human beings. When we realize we have offended God, we want nothing to do with him. You remember the example of um, Adam and Eve after they sinned in Genesis 3. The Bible tells us that God came down in the cool of the evening. When they heard, they went and hid. Why did they hide? They feared they had done something wrong. So we need to realize that there is clearly a difference between love and fear. And the first difference is this, that fear is not an ingredient in love. It is not an ingredient in love. Look at the way John puts it at the beginning of verse 18. John says there, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. Let me define fear for you. Although in defining it, I know that we all know it by experience. Fear is basically a terrible emotion. It's a dreadful emotion. It is a sense of anxiety that grips us. And it is an emotion that is born out of a belief that something bad is about to happen. Now, it could be simply because somebody has broken into your home, you don't know who it is, it is at night, and consequently you are afraid that whoever this person is, is going to hurt you. That's fear. It's made you anxious, filled you with dread. Or it could be because you have done wrong. Many years ago, our head teachers were allowed to give us a few beatings on the back here. And I was in boarding school in those days. When you saw the headmaster coming down that corridor, 
If you were innocent, it's hello sir, hello sir, hello sir, hello sir, and everything else, you know, with a big, broad smile. <laughs> if you were guilty, your conscience said to you, it's me he's after. Not only that, your mind began to play the process of following him back to his office, bending down. Only those who've been through it will understand what I mean when I go like that. Fear filled your It was a result of knowing I've done wrong and consequently something bad, something dreadful, something hurtful is about to happen to me. Now let's quickly apply it to the context of the home. What John is saying here is not that if you are an individual who is loved, then you will not have this kind of fear. But he's talking more of the fear of banishment, where you know that you, you, this, this, you, you, because of what you have done, you are likely to be separated from this person, and consequently, you will suffer. And he's saying, that where there is love, that thought is just not there. It's not there. Let me quickly illustrate this by what happened yesterday. We had a wedding. Now you can be sure that in Mercy's mind as she was coming for the actual union, coming together, that she was not afraid, assuming that her relationship with Kapanda had been a relationship of love. She was at ease. She would have been enjoying her day. I'm finally coming into union with my best friend, and we will never be parted. But let's assume that it's two people getting married. And the courtship had already been checkered with breakups coming together, breakup coming together, another breakup coming together. And often the breakup being because the guy has seen a beautiful girl. And consequently, there's a breakup, he's off with that one. After the breakup, he's back again. And then for a while, another beautiful girl shows up in church. Breakup. Obviously, she begins to wonder, does he really love me? And consequently, 
Even when you getting married, you sort of say, God wish. There's still the sense of fear that although we are going to be married, divorce might happen. This man may again find someone else and consequently we do not proceed with this love affair. What we're being told here is quite simple. That where there is genuine love, this understanding that I am loved, fear is not part of the package. It's not. You are relaxing in that knowledge. But John goes further. And he's saying it's not just not an ingredient, but true love also destroys fear. Look at the way he puts it. Chapter 4 and verse 18. There's no fear in love, but instead, perfect love casts out fear. And the point he's making is pretty obvious. You will remember when we were reading 2 Samuel, and uh, David is told after he counted the people of Israel, and including the armies that he had. And uh, God's anger was coming out against him. And he was told to make a number of choices, rather one choice out of three possibilities. One was for him to fall under God's punishment or discipline. The other was to fall under the punishment of fellow human beings. David's response was immediate. He said, I would rather be under God. Because with God, there is love. There is hope with such a God. And friends, that's really the nature of love as well. Often this happens in our African context. When you begin to foster a child who comes to you from another family. Perhaps that child has lost both parents and at the funeral they have decided this child now is going to stay with you. Have you noticed how to begin with that child is always just in the bedroom and even when they come out at the first opportunity of something, they, they're really thinking you are going to chase them away. Eh? That's the first thought. It's like, look, uh, I, I, I'm really here just so that I can have a chance in life. That's the reason why I'm here. And it takes painstaking parental effort at showing unconditional love before this person comes out of the shell. 
and becomes like one of the other children. And it is this love that is pushing fear out. And consequently, before long, at least if you are showing this unconditional fear, rather unconditional love, the, the, the child is, reaches a point where they are like anyone else that has been biologically born in that family. Now, the Apostle Paul, rather the Apostle John is using perfect in terms of fullness or completeness. We saw this last week. Back to verse 17. By this is love perfected in us. We said, how is this love perfected? Well, first of all, it is as we look back to what God did in Jesus Christ. We have sinned against him. Therefore, we deserve his punishment. But what has he done? He has sent his son to be the savior of the world. He has given his son to be punished in our place, to be a propitiation for our sin. So we are gazing there. We are looking at Jesus crying to the father on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we realize this is God's own son the darling of God from all eternity. And the answer to that question, why, is simple. Because God so loved the world that he has given his son. And consequently, our guilt is laid upon his son. And by an act of God, he now crushes him. Because of our sin. And so you are saying there, what love? What love? Amazing love being displayed on the cross. But secondly, as you trust in him, the spirit that has been given to us as we read in verse 13 is the spirit of God. So the same God who has loved in history in that way is the same God who is now loving through you. Enabling you to love those who offend you. The brethren that rub you the wrong way. You still deliberately reach out to them. So you've understood love from Calvary and you've understood love flowing out of your own soul. You have a full understanding of it in what God has done and in the way it flows out of you. And he's saying there, it is perfected in us and because of that, we are able to look forward to judgment because we've seen something of who he is and it also flows out of you. Now, it is that fullness, that completeness rather than 
perfect 100%. It is that that is, we are being told as we come to a fuller understanding and a fuller realization of love in our hearts, fear goes out of the window. It goes out of the window. You can look into the future with no dread. One of the hymns we sang earlier on Just, I deliberately had it in place here. Good. It said, Blessed Savior, then in love, fear and distrust remove. Oh, bear me safe above a ransomed soul. Notice the hymn writer saying, in love, remove fear and distrust. Because I'm experiencing your love, therefore fear and distrust is being cast out. It's being removed. It's being destroyed. I want to ask at this point, as we proceed, do you know this love? First of all, the love of God for you. Do you know this love? To the point where fear for the future is removed. Because a God who has loved you this way, unconditionally, bearing in mind that you are a sinner, and yet giving, his own son for you. And then he's a God of providence. He controls all these things. He controls the future. I'm asking, has that cast out fear from your life about tomorrow? We're not even coming to the judgment day yet, but about tomorrow. Has it removed fear? Has it removed distrust so that you are able to go into your future with a solid hope? Has that happened yet? You see, brethren, this, this is part of assurance of salvation. It is. It's what enables us to be triumphant, joyful believers. In today's world, with all its uncertainties, knowing my father loves me. That's enough. That's Christianity. Let me ask, is that your Christianity? Do you know that? Remember I said it's reasonable. It's reasonable. John is not content here to simply give us facts. He now gives us the reason why those facts must hold. Back to 1 John and chapter 5. Rather, chapter 4.
He's telling us here that the reason why love destroys fear is because fear has to do with punishment. Look at the way he puts it. 1 John chapter 5, 4, verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Then he says, for fear has to do with punishment. Let's go back to illustration, and it becomes fairly easy here. Why are those children all locked up in that bedroom? It's because their consciences tell them we had a law or a rule that was given. We were supposed to obey it. We didn't. Clearly, we deserve to be punished. So you cannot, knowing very well that you deserve to be punished, rush out of your house at the sound of the car and hug daddy's legs. Doesn't make sense. You have this realization, I am about to be punished for what I have done. And consequently, that dreaded emotion fills your heart. Fear has to do with punishment. But then, this illustration is not simply the discipline that one is about to get. Remember, he's illustrating what's going to happen on the judgment day when God finally says, Angel Gabriel, tie him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, it's a permanent punishment. And that's why I used the illustration of that child that has been adopted and brought into our family. The fear that the moment they know it's me, I'm gone. It's that level of punishment that is being talked about here. I'm gone. I will have to either go back to the village or I'll start going from home to home like a fugitive. My future is bleak. Fear has You have a conscience. And that conscience tells you, you have sinned against God. It tells you that. You have sinned against God. You've broken his laws. Other people may not know, and because of that, you are somehow able to swim among them. But God knows all things. And come the judgment day, it's God can you have courage to come out and embrace him? How? 
Because your conscience is saying punishment. 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 You deserve to be punished. You deserve to be banished from the presence of God forever. You deserve it. And consequently, it only makes sense that you are filled with dread, with fear. You go to church and you are hoping that somehow or other you can buy God's favor. But your conscience at the end of all the exercise still says to you, you deserve to be punished. It obviously is counterproductive. It doesn't make you a worshiper of God. It doesn't make you somebody who serves the Lord. It doesn't make you an individual who wants to love God back. It doesn't. And he ends his argument this way. That fear ultimately suggests that you don't know in your heart anything of this perfect love of God. Look at the way he ends verse 18. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now again... We need to be clear by going back to, to the illustration. A child in the home who knows that I am loved unconditionally, this is what the child does. The parents arrive and the child is either sitting in the sitting room or is in the bedroom but comes out with a head bowed low. What is it, John? I, I broke the window. How did it happen? You, you remember you said that we shouldn't play on the lawn in front of the house? Yes. We were playing there, and I broke the window. Why has this child come out that way? It's because the child knows that I owe my loving parents an apology. I do. And I know that I've got unconditional love. If what I will get will be an act of discipline, it is still an act of love. It's not on my way out forever. It's not. That's what David was saying at the end of 2 Samuel. That look, if I'm at the mercy of human beings, they'll simply chop me into pieces and get rid of me. My father is not like that. So let me be at his mercy. He may discipline me for a season, but I know it is not permanent destruction. It's not permanent banishment. He loves me. 
And one of David's favorite phrases, as most of us know, is his love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. He knows that. And consequently, his attitude is, yes, let me put myself at his mercy. And any discipline will be for my good, my lasting good. And what is it doing? Fear crumbles. It's crumbling. Is that you? Is that you? Perhaps it's even now. You've lost your job. Maybe you've lost your health. Maybe you've lost your marriage. Or maybe you've lost your children. But something negative has come into your life. How are you processing it? Are you processing it as my father loves me? I know that all things work together for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So even this is ultimately medicine to do me good. It may be sour in the mouth, but ultimately it is healing in my body. He is good to me. Oh, is it saying to you, yeah? My sins have caught up with me. God is finishing me off now. Just finishing me off. I deserve it. This is but a dionko. Hell is coming after this. It's coming. I'm asking, what's your reaction? What's your reaction to your present circumstances? The frowning providence. Because that's what shows whether you have genuine Biblical assurance of salvation or not. What's your reaction to those challenges that are there in life? And you know that God has something to do with this. John is saying there, whoever fears has not been perfected in faith. What is he saying? Two quick things. First of all, it means your understanding of God's love for you is defective. It's defective. Somehow you have not come to a proper understanding of what happened at Calvary. You haven't. And many people think like this. That Jesus died for my sins, yes. Those sins I committed before I became a Christian. But now that I'm a Christian, and then with full knowledge I sin against him, 
I deserve to go to hell. Well, I'm saying if that's your understanding, you have not understood what the Bible is teaching. Because Jesus has paid for all your sins, past, present, future, all of them. Doesn't matter how dark they might be. They were laid on his shoulders and he paid the full price for them. God is not going to exact two payments for the same sin he wants. He's paid it all. So the point there is quite simple. Your thinking about Calvary is defective. It is. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But there's another. And this is even more serious. It may be suggesting that you have not experienced God's salvation in your heart. Because if God has saved you, and individuals who have wronged you, you have still forgiven them. You've still been a means of blessing to them. And you are able to say, this is not me. This must be God by his spirit working out of my heart. Why should God act any differently on that final day when he is acting in your heart now by his spirit in such a loving, caring, tender, forgiving way. In other words, if in this life, with your claim to be a believer, you're still somebody going around hurting this one, offending the other, and those that need care and love, your little soul is shriveled, you don't care about them whatsoever. It's just you and your wife or husband and our own little children you don't care about the other believers. Then yes, you've got every reason to fear because love is not perfected in you. It's not full-orbed in you. It is not complete in you. It's not flowing out of you. You have every reason to fear because most probably you are not a Christian at all. You may be religious, even a Baptist, but you are not a believer in the biblical sense. That's what John is saying here. So my plea is this. Use fear as a litmus paper test for your salvation. Use it. Are you fearful? Especially when you think about the judgment day. So it's the hymn that we'll be singing in closing says, Pause my soul and ask the question. Am I ready to meet God? Now, pause. Ask yourself that question. That if I was to drop dead today, am I ready to meet my maker? 
Now, if the response that your soul is giving you is the sort of lock yourself in the bedroom child, childish response, then clearly your understanding of Calvary is defective and your own experience might be saying quite a lot. But it's you who must answer that. And towards the end of that hymn, it says, think and tremble. Think and tremble, it says. In other words, yes, you've got every right to be genuinely fearful because danger is upon the road. It's coming. Is that your position now? Fearing, trembling. If it is, I want to plead with you, as I always do. Call upon Christ. Call upon Christ. Pray to him. Be honest with him. Tell him that your understanding of Calvary to begin with is defective. That he might open your eyes, that he may remove the scale from your eyes so that you may genuinely understand that love of God that is eternal, the love of God that is infinite, the love of God that is fully displayed at Calvary. Pray to him that way. And then also pray to him that he may save you. That he may so save you that that love that was displayed on Calvary, something of that love, the characteristics of that love might begin to radiate out of your life. Pray to him and refuse to be comforted until you can see a real transformation. The kind of transformation that removes fear from tomorrow, fear from death, fear from the throne of judgment. I want to repeat, don't rest until that kind of assurance is yours today. Amen.